Dave's communion, and we'll be playing a little bit behind Bobby.
me in honor of the word of God as I read Jude 1, 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word of God for the people of God. Read New City Catechism question 31 with me. What do we believe by true faith? Everything taught to us in the gospel. The Apostles' Creed expresses that we believe in these words. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. What do we believe by true faith? Question 31 in the New City Catechism. What do we believe by true faith? This year we've been teaching just basic foundational truths of the gospel. It's hard to sum that up. It's hard to sum it up in a year. But what the Apostles' Creed does is try to sum that up, what we believe by true faith, in that short of a statement. What they're trying to do is sum up the whole gospel according to God's word. So we're going to look into, into God's word We will specifically look at what Jude is saying here. There's something about our common salvation. Something that all of us believers have in common. That's what he's saying. He finds it necessary here to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. That is the body of faith that we as believers agree in. That's common for our salvation. So not so much the faith that we have trust in faith, but the faith as the body of faith that we believe in as Christians. We will look at that part of believing in that faith, believing in that body of faith that we have as Christians. So there's a faith that believes and a faith that is the body of faith that we believe in. That's what the Apostles' Creed is it summarizes what our true faith is in christ last week we looked at why creeds why we have them we even looked in first corinthians 15 verses 3 through 6 real specifically that that is a creed in the bible that we believe he died according to the scriptures he was buried he rose again according to the scriptures and he appeared to cephas his appearings his And so all of that is a basic creed. We looked at that. And when we looked at the meaning of creeds and we began, we only covered two of the 12 statements of faith listed in the Apostles' Creed. So they were very important, the very beginning, that we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. We covered that. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, we continued to cover that. And we ended on uh, statement three. We'll begin right there, right now. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We see in scriptures conceived by the Holy Spirit in Luke one twenty-seven, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we see the virgin's name. Uh, born of the Virgin Mary, Luke one twenty seven. We see conceived by the Holy Spirit in Luke one thirty five, And the angel answered her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So these statements are right out of Scripture. These are the, you know, the Apostles' Creed, but they're statements that come right out of these Scriptures. Some people have, there's kind of an echo a little bit there, rifle. Some people have mentioned that a little bit. But the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and that Mary's a virgin. There's been debate a lot more in recent uh, theological terms about the virgin birth, how important that is. We continue to stick with uh, the, the creed and the scripture which says that Mary was a virgin. People have debated, just to be prepared, uh, you know, a little bit for you. If people say the word virgin from Isaiah 7:14, where it mentions that word in Hebrew actually means just a young girl. That's all it means there. Don't be thinking virgin means, you know, this virgin supernatural birth. It just means a young girl. And that is true. There's words, so, you know, you need to be prepared for that. Luke 7, 4, I mean, um, in Isaiah, what, what that word means in 714. The virgin, young girl, shall conceive and bear a son. And so, when Luke is using this and other people in the Gospels are using it, they say that the virgin means... Also, not just young girl, so it's not admitting that that's what Isaiah was saying. It's not contradicting what Isaiah was saying, that a young girl would conceive and bear a child. His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. It's not contradicting that. It's further unfolding what this young girl would be, which almost all young girls were virgins when they got married. That was common. The implication there is virgin and what Luke here brings out is not only was she a young girl, but she had also never been with a man. And that is clear. If you believe on apostolic authority, the authority of the New Testament, the authority of the Gospels, looking back on Scripture and saying, this is further unfolding what that means, what virgin means, then it also means, besides young girl, it means never being with a man. And that's what Mary said. To the angel, she says in Luke 1.34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And that implication right there, that word is, I have never been with a man. People and even young girls knew where babies came from. And she knew it was an impossibility for her to have a baby. They weren't that ignorant back then not to know what virgin meant and what it meant. So the virgin birth is central to our faith in that Mary had never been with a man and that's why the angel answered her this holy spirit will come upon you so when we say mary was a virgin in the apostles creed we say born of the virgin mary we do mean a miraculous birth conceived by the holy spirit with a young girl who had never been with a man virgin okay so if people use the isaiah thing don't let that throw you oh it only meant a young girl yeah it meant that and and had never been with a man just want you to be prepared for that. Of course, you can't be prepared for all of the skeptics out there that don't believe these things. Uh, but sometimes it helps to be a little bit aware of the breakdown of some of the words. But also, what this goes on to say is that Jesus suffered. So it enters into his suffering. And how Jesus suffered, the Apostle Creed said, is under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, and descended into hell. All these are his suffering. Look at how Christ suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That puts it into Jesus' suffering into real history. There are other historical accounts about uh, a Pilate, about Pontius Pilate, about him existing within the Roman rule. And so it puts Jesus in a place and time in history and it does many other things. But Luke 23, 24 says, So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And this places Jesus at that, at, at that historical time. The other thing that it does, it says he was crucified. 
uh, John 19, 20, and many other portions of Scripture. Of course, there's many verses that back this portion of the creed up, but John 19, 20, just to mention one, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. The place where Jesus was crucified. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered by one of the most cruel uh, types of death ever invented by man, uh, crucifixion. And it says that he died. So we're going to look at death, burial, and descending into hell. These all, when you talk about Jesus being victorious over, we used to have this phrase, Jesus was victorious over death, hell, and the grave. How many of you got into that rhythm? Jesus was victorious over, these were the sufferings, the sufferings that Jesus died as a human on that cross. He breathed his last breath. He was not just resuscitated, he died, breathed his last breath, was buried, was dead for three days, buried in that tomb, and rose again. So he died. He suffered death. He suffered being buried. He suffered the fullness of what death is and being buried. And then it mentions the scripture uh, descended into hell. That's probably one of the harder things we can kind of understand. Death, we can understand you died. You bring your laugh. You uh, were, were buried in that tomb. We get that, the tomb. And then, but descended into hell. What does this mean? What did Jesus? There's very uh, limited scriptures backing up that portion of the creed. Like I said, there's lots about the crucifixion, his, his burial, the fact that he was buried, the empty tomb, the resurrection, which we'll get into, but, but not a whole lot about descended in hell, what that could possibly mean. And so, of course, I got a couple of pages on that, which is very limited and minimal of the amount of time we could spend just on that subject. But I'm going to try to filter it out in what I figure, believe is important about hell. Hell does have to do with the grave. It does have to do with Jesus' victory over the grave. That's what Sheol meant. The place of the dead. The place where you put that dead body. The grave. And so hell does have to do with victory over the grave. Descended into hell. He descended into that tomb. He descended in that place of the dead. The grave. And we will look at that victory over the grave. But hell is also, as Jesus described it, one of the ways he described it as a place of outer darkness. And we're going to look at that Jesus on the cross bore that darkness, that hell, that pain of hell, that agony of hell, that separation from God kind of darkness hell. Are you with me so far? These different aspects. Jesus descended into the hell, the place of the dead, shield the grave first. Well, Matthew 12, 20 said, Jesus' words were, here's the sign I'll give you, because they were looking for a sign. Jesus, Matthew 12, 40 says, Matthew 12, 40, the word of the Lord. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, confirming that story as real, uh, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, like in the grave, in the place of the dead, in this place. So, he would be buried for three days, confirming that. When, Jesus, when Peter preached the great sermon, the first great sermon after being filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he's explaining who Jesus is, this Peter who denied Jesus, who cowered to people around the fireplace that even knew Jesus, is now full of faith and boldness, preaches uh, I mean, all of the sermons and acts are so phenomenally great, but this one, the 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 the, the first uh, one after Pentecost, Peter preaching, he emphasizes this point towards the end of his sermon in Acts 2.24. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, like the pains of holding him there in that burial, the, the place of that pains of death, that descending into hell type of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he quotes Psalm 16.10, 
Peter does in this sermon. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that place of the grave, using that Old Testament word. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Jewish people and Hebrews believe that after three days is when the real corruption began to set in. That's why Jesus waited four days for Lazarus. Corruption. He already stinks. It's been four days. He's already corrupting. Now that was a, a different type of resurrection than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead with a glorified body. But it still emphasizes that point. But loosing the pains of death, Acts 2.24 says here. Acts 2.27 where Peter's continuing to preach from Psalm 16.10 for you will not allow uh, your, your Holy One. And from Psalms he's saying that's not David. Tomb's right out there. His bones are still in there. He's rotted to corruption. That, that scripture's not talking about David, it's talking about Jesus. So he emphasizes that in the scriptures. And we have here the, the, the fact that Jesus, God raised him up over the power of death, over the pains of death. He didn't abandon his soul to shield, to the place of the grave, to this Hades. But we also see Jesus on the cross bearing the pain and agony of hell, not just the part of the grave, but you see him on the cross. And you see in Mark 15, 33 through 34, it says, when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, till three, three hours of darkness that fell over the whole land. And at that ninth hour, after Jesus' bearing, what happened during this three hours of darkness over the whole land, this supernatural darkness, not an eclipse. They were aware of those and seen those of the sun, not something that happened in the rhythm of time, but a supernatural one-time occurrence where deep darkness, dread fell in that darkness over the whole earth. What happened there? Well, at the end of that three hours, we know it was some kind of torment because Jesus cried out on that, that hour. It says he cried out in the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. To understand what that means, it would be like trying to say that it's hard to even write, but be like a blood-curling scream. He screamed out in agony. I'm not trying to add to what the word means. And the words mean, that's what it means when it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatoxini. And so when they say that, it's because they just remember those exact words. They actually go back from the Greek and just write it in the old Aramaic, the way Jesus actually cried it out because the words were etched in their ears. This crying out of Psalm 22.1 saying, my God, my God, this is agony crying out. Why have you forsaken me? This is a loud scream. It's an agonizing scream. It's Jesus bearing the blackness and darkness of hell. It's Jesus. He, he descended into hell. He was in hell. He was in separation from God. He was in utter darkness upon that tree. He was alone, the triune God, the Father and Son who had always existed from all eternity beyond time was severed in that moment as he became sin. Who knew no sin for our sake? It is him descending into hell. I think this is one of the most powerful aspects of the creed and of hell. Yes, he, he defeated the grave upon the cross he defeated the grave and the the suffering of eternal the eternal dread of everlasting death he overcame the grave i mean it's hard to get greater than that but if you if you have to expound on it he overcame darkness that utter darkness in fact in jude where we're reading in jude 113 it talks about these people wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Gloom of utter darkness. Jesus bore the gloom of utter darkness. There's a, 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 in Isaiah 8, 22, it men mentions this, that being thrust into a thick darkness. However you want to put this darkness, thick, gloomy. This is an agonizing type of hell that Jesus bore for us. He bore outer darkness. Jude, utter darkness. Isaiah, thick darkness. 
Jude, again, the gloom of darkness. He bore that on the tree, digging in to what Jesus, you know, uh, bore for us on the tree helps us realize the depths of our depravity, and it also helps us to see the glory of what Jesus did, the, uh, the depths of his love of what he would go through to uh, endure for us. In fact, when he's sweating in the garden, a lot of people look at uh, the passion of the Christ and they see the, the bloodiness of what it was to suffer under Pontius Pilate. They see the blood of the whipping. They see the physical torment. For most of us, we shudder. And, you know, I'm not denying that physical pain that Jesus bore and suffered under Pontius Pilate. But when Jesus sweat great drops of blood in the garden, it was much more than dreading that. He was dreading Psalm 22.1. He was dreading at what point will I cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken that? That's about me. That psalm is about me. Will I reach that depth when I become sin? And, bear, and, and God is saying, obey me about the tree. Obey me about the tree. Go to the cross where Adam failed with the tree. You obey me about the tree. And Jesus did. He completely obeyed through the suffering and he descended into hell for us. The third day he rose again, the scriptures say. The third day, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Yes, it says it on, in the Apostles' Creed that he rose again, but it's straight out of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that according to the scripture, he rose from the dead on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. So this portion of the Apostles' Creed straight out of that scripture. Others, of course, too. It goes on to say that he appeared to Cephas. There was witnesses. Uh, he appeared to James, the, the brother of Jesus. He appeared to uh, last and 500 at one time. Huge uh, statement there by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we don't know exactly when that was, but by the authority of the scriptures, he knew when it was and makes that statement. Then he says he appeared also to me. Uh, last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. The resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to Paul, signifying his apostleship and calling. All these things come together and say that Jesus rose on the third day. Now, obviously, besides people not believing in the virgin birth, this is another real big one. He didn't rise from the dead. Dead is dead, and you never come back from being dead. And if you ever are kind of resuscitated, you still die again, like Lazarus and all the other people that maybe were. Jesus never died again. We're going to get to that he ascended. That means he never died again. But he's also appearing to people. These appearances happened in the scriptures for a period of over 40 days that Jesus appeared to people. So for a long period of time, he, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was appearing to people. These were eyewitnesses of that account. Now, when Paul was preaching the resurrection of Jesus, Peter preached it in Acts 2, I already mentioned. He didn't abandon his soul to Hades. He's resurrected. They always preached, as we looked at last week, the death, burial, and resurrection. Every, the sermons in Acts, you read them all. They will talk about the death of Christ, how he was crucified, how he's buried, and how he rose again. That's the core of the gospel. They will always preach that. And Paul's preaching in Acts 26. And he's preaching before Jesus even said, I'll bring you before kings. And so he's before King Agrippa and Festus, another governing leader. And as he's preaching the sermon, he gets down to the resurrection in Acts 26, verses 23 through 26. And he says, Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead... I mean, he's the first to ever rise from the dead, never to die again. The first of the, the firstborn of the resurrection, the first to never die again, rise from the dead. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Paul's in chains, uh, preaching, brought before these rulers. And in his defense, he's preaching and saying this, Festus, with a loud voice, 
says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Saying you're crazy, you're mad. He interrupts him. This raising from the dead thing. Paul, stop. Your great learning. They knew he'd been trained under Gamaliel. And this is like some guy that Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, graduate guy. I mean, this guy knows stuff. Like that. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind, Paul. You've studied too much. You've gone crazy. You're talking about a dead man who was dead, who is alive and alive forevermore. You're crazy. Paul isn't knocked off of his sermon at all with this interruption. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, with respect. Most excellent Festus. I mean, not getting all bent out of shape in a rage and attacking him back, just saying, clear statement. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Think about faith being true and rational. Most people say, step out in blind faith. You know, you just got to believe. It's, it's not rational. He's saying, it's rational. How can a person raising from the dead be rational talk? Well, here's what Paul says. Not only is it true, but it's rational and it makes sense for the king knows about these things. What else does he know? What, is, what do they know? What does Festus know? Agrippa Festus specifically. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. You've noticed these things, Festus, and you know it's not just me. I'm speaking true and rational words, for this has not been done in a corner. You've heard much more stories than from me, Festus. You're coming here and hearing this, but you know the kingdom is in an uproar. In fact, they said these are the men that have turned the world upside down. You know that causes some instability in government leadership. And you know, Festus, much more. This is not only true words that I'm speaking to you, but it's rational. And it's rational because of what he says to the Corinthians. He's not only appeared to me as one last and timely bore, but he has appeared to Cephas. He's appeared to James not one of the twelve. He appeared to the twelve also, it says there. But James, the brother of Jesus, he's appeared to him. And he's appeared to 500 at one time. And all these eyewitnesses, this is how you determine history. This is how you determine what truth is. You go and you ask people. This is what Luke did in his, in his gospel and in Acts. The one who wrote almost most of the New Testament, maybe second to Paul, but Acts and Luke combined. And he says he's writing these truths to, to most excellent Theophilus. He's writing these rational truths. He's going and seeking out eyewitnesses. That's how you figure out what something happened. This last week, John, Jonathan and I were standing out after men's Bible study on Tuesday morning. Some of the guys go to breakfast and they had taken off. And we're there and a wreck happens. We don't really see it or hear it, but somebody rams into the back of this car, knocks him way over on this road, right down from Barnett Carpets where we have the Bible study, and another car looks like it's bashed over the curb, maybe into a tree, and it's smoking. It's just smoking. It, you can't really see flames. I don't know, Jonathan, just massive smoke. And uh, if you wanted to know what happened there, how you would investigate that, it was you, you, would, you would ask people. That's how you discover things. You go around. Did anyone see it? Who was this guy? Did they catch him? Who was he? What happened? Why did, did he hit that car first? Did he hit that car second? You go around. This is what they did in the Bible. History. It's historical evidence. I just want to make that, you know, the, the, the day of the, the resurrection, there were many eyewitnesses. And Paul saying, great. You want to hear that end of that story? You can read what happened. But anyway, that happened there. But you go around and you ask and you, you, you read articles and who that person confronted, you know, at the, at the middle schools and, you know, why he fled and how the sheriffs turned him around. And you go and you talk to people and you read what happened. In the same way, Paul's saying, I'm speaking to you true words that Jesus raised from the dead. And I'm speaking rational words. They make sense to me as an intelligent person. I've studied this. I've talked to eyewitnesses. This is the same thing Luke did to convince Theophilus. Greeks wanted to be, he's writing to a Greek and he's explaining things in Luke. He's writing his gospel with a very specific uh, historical evidence in mind, going and talking to eyewitnesses and saying, you can go and talk to them too. Here's their name. 
Here's where they're from. So when you hear about his crucifixion and you hear Simon the Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, that's in there. Who is he? You know, his father, Alexander. It's putting all those things in there for historical, rational, true things. You can go to Alexander. You can find Simon Cyrene's, who he's the descendant father of, and you can find out who he is, and you can ask him, did you carry Jesus' cross? You don't believe me. So this is important to me about the resurrection. It's not just believe without evidence. It, this is what convinces, uh, you know, journalists that write books that uh, a case for faith, you know, Strobel, who's a journalist, his wife becomes a Christian. He goes, I'm going to go investigate this thing and prove it wrong. Well, when he starts investigating the resurrection and starts seeing all the evidence as a journalist, he becomes a Christian himself because it's rational. It has a rationality to it. It's true words, yes, but it, can also, it also makes sense that if you wanted to know this truly happened, it truly did, and the third day he rose again. Amen? The empty tomb, they never found a body. The eyewitnesses, they went, many of them, to their death, spreading the good news that Jesus had risen and appeared to them in a flesh and bone body, not a spirit. He ate fish. This wasn't done in just a corner. It was done out in the world. These things all had to come together. N.T. Wright says, the empty tomb with no sightings, people could still believe the body had been stolen. Eyewitnesses that said they saw the body, but the body was still in the tomb, they would believe they were just hallucinating. And you also have that their lives were permanently changed. The eyewitnesses themselves, their lives, Saul of Tarsus never went back to being Saul of Tarsus. The disciples became these changed, permanently changed people. And N.T. Wright goes on to say, only if all three of these are true, the empty tomb, the sightings of the eyewitnesses, and the permanently changed lives of those eyewitnesses, only if all three of those are true, which Christianity says is, and they are, there's no reason for the existence of the church today without all three of those. If you just have one of them, or two of them, and not all three of them. And T. Wright reasons, the only reason the church began and exists today is that Jesus truly rose from the dead. That's powerful to me. I like the resurrection. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Luke 24 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Ever heard a sermon on the ascension? They have said that a lot of people have never heard a sermon on the ascension. That it's one of the most neglected doctrines of the faith. But the ascension is right here in scripture. Maybe we're a little bit ashamed that he was standing right there on the earth and started just ascending lifting up into heaven and departed from them uh, them that way. Whatever the reasons are, the ascension is very powerful, it's very important, it's included in this statement of faith as the sixth statement of faith of the Apostles' Creed. Acts 1.11, when they were standing there looking, Acts brings out Luke, and Acts says, Men of Galilee, angels standing there, men, dressed in white. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you, ascended, they were just like, and he's receiving clouds, they're like, and these two angels start telling him, why do you stand gazing? This Jesus that was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Teresa kind of wept over that this morning, just trying to read that, that the, the return of Christ, his his glory, his ascension. In our statement of faith, a proclamation of gospel that we read every morning, we have that he is enthroned 
we have that he is seated at the right hand of God. That means as he ascended, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. To be seated at the right hand means that's where Jesus is now. He has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God. Mark 16, 9, so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. All in Scripture, many places in Scripture. Hebrews 1, 3, uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you have he ascended in Scripture, and you have that he sat down. Uh, at the right hand of God. You have this glorification of Jesus after he appeared for 40 days in the resurrected body. He then ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God. What does it mean? What is the importance of the, the ascension? One of the things it mentions in John, in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus is beginning to dwell on the fact that he will be crucified Died, be buried, descend into hell, and ascend, restored back to God. And it's about Jesus returning home. Jesus is going to ascend. He's going to return back to the Father. And he's longing for this already in John 17, 5. As he's beginning his high priestly prayer, he says, And now, listen to this, the word of the Lord. This is one of the most powerful, one, just very powerful scripture. Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was, before the world existed. Wow, what an insight into the prayer of Jesus. Father, glorify me. I want to come home. I want to be with you where I was with you before the world was, before the world even existed before you started this whole thing, before we started this whole thing, before we created everything. We looked at that last week. God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, Jesus, his only son. Restore. So the ascension says that, that he's going to ascend. He's going he's to return back home. But he's going to return. He's going to return with scars in a, in a glorified body. And within those scar, scarred hand, he's going to be holding uh, the keys. And he's going to be enthroned. Uh, Revelations 1.17 says that John, the apostle, fell before his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Whew. Man, can you imagine that? I'd be ready to write Revelation after that. What do you got? What do you got, Lord? The ascension is that Jesus has that authority, the keys of death and Hades, that he has been enthroned as king. Not only is he returning home, but the ascension says he sat down at the right hand. That's why it follows it. He has ascended and he has sat down. The ascension, the ascension says that Jesus has been enthroned as king forever. Jesus is the ruling king right now forever. Nothing can change that. He is enthroned right now, ruling in the midst of his enemies. Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. And Psalm 110.1 says this. Jesus even quotes it in his, some of his teaching. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That verse right there is the ascension and Jesus is throned as king. Sit at my right hand. So Jesus is ruling right now at God's right hand in the midst of his enemies. While all of the enemies of Jesus are made a footstool for Jesus' feet. Besides being enthroned as king, the ascension says that he has entered once and for all into that holy place as the high priest. And his priestly ministry is taught uh, after the ascension and enthronement in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 12. But all through Hebrews... But this specific verse says he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. Jesus entered into the holy places in heaven with his own blood. He brought his own blood in to the throne room in heaven. I don't know if you know, but when God, you know, God gave Moses the instructions to build the throne room, he said, this is a copy of what is in heaven, so make it exactly like I tell you to. So we have a, a, a good visual of what heaven looks like. There is a mercy seat, and he's bringing his blood in and pouring out, not the blood like the other priests did of bulls and goats in the temple on that mercy seat saying, forgive us. Jesus is bringing his own blood. He's the high priest that brings his own blood once and for all. Sacrifices have ended and have ended forever. Don't let anyone talk about sacrifices being reinstituted. The, the Jesus, because that, that would be uh, apostasy, but Jesus has offered once and for all his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is part of the gospel of our salvation, securing. When he put that blood on the mercy seat, he entered with his own blood. So his ascension and enthronement, and, and his enthronement is his, and ascension is his high priestly ministry that he operated in. He is our high priest. He has offered his own blood. Previously in Hebrews 7, it has said that, that not only did he rise and die and all these things, but because he always lives to make intercession for us in heaven. He always lives. He's living, making intercession for us. He has secured that eternal redemption for us through his ascension and enthronement. Jesus is still your advocate making the case for you with his blood. Still your defender, your attorney at your right hand going, this is my child. He's forgiven. He's covered in my blood. When he comes and repents and turns from his sin and confesses his sin, they're under me and they're under my blood and he or she is mine. Do you love him? I love him. I love him when he takes me there and he says, I am your advocate. Confess your sins to me and I'm just and faithful to forgive you. I justly can forgive you. I endured sin and death. I endured the hell that you're trying to live in by your rebellion and disobedience to me and come to me and repent. And I'll defend you in my blood. The power of his blood is that priestly ministry of his ascension and enthronement at his right hand. Knowing Jesus is our high priest, Hebrews goes on to say we can come boldly before the throne of grace knowing that we have that advocate there who has walked our road and felt our pain, Hebrews 4, 14. And just like the angel said at his ascension, he will return in like manner. Now that's a whole nother. He will come to judge the living and the dead next, but I'm going to stop right there. Um, I know this is a longer answer to most of our questions, but it is pretty long, so I hope you don't mind that I'm breaking it into three different Sundays. Amen? So we'll stop there and hopefully cover 7 through 12. That leaves me with five more. You might be interested in that he's coming to judge the living in the, in the dead. You might under, understand this has very much to do with the Holy Spirit. That's I believe in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that it is to your advantage that I go away. Do you know what that means? That I ascend. It's to your advantage that I ascend. That's John 16, 7. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, if I don't ascend, the helper will not come. It's to your advantage. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit coming because of his ascension, because he has ascended. That's, that was the fourth one. You didn't want me to leave that out, did you, about his ascension? That he has to ascend so he can send the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that will come out next week some more. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. And all the rest of them ends with, amen. It's right, amen. So I say amen today, which means that's right so far. But we will continue next week. Right now, I'd like for us to take communion together. That's next week also. The communion of the saints. How beautiful it is to have fellowship with you. How beautiful it is to celebrate with a body of believers. How beautiful it is to celebrate with the worship team.
Amen. Can we give them just applause to the Lord for our worship team? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Shout out to the Lord. We miss Janet on the flute. Um, what else was missing? Mary. My gosh. And, and Micah kind of stepped in with the guitar. So he was playing guitar and bass because we miss Mary with that lead guitar. And Mary's done a phenomenal job in leading our worship team and directing it. We truly miss them. But what's miraculous for us here at Grace Harvest is we once had a worship team if, if that if one or two people were missing, we couldn't really do worship, right? <laughs> and now we have other people that can make it that beautiful. Other people's voices came out. I thought, you know, Rachel's and Dolores's. I mean, I, I, for some reason I could just, you know, it was just beautiful. And, and so though we miss uh, Mary and Janet, the Lord still blessed us with the worship team, didn't he? And we'll continue to as we sing this closing song together. So appreciative of the communion of the saints. The Lord called us to come together and to celebrate a meal together, which consisted of bread and the fruit of the vine, the grapes. And Paul teaches this continuing in the church to the Corinthians. And he says, you guys are celebrating communion. You're celebrating the Lord's table, but you're not really doing it right. And so let me give you some instructions. And he begins with, in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he gave thanks to the Father for it. So we take bread, the symbol of this bread and this cracker, and we give thanks to the Father for it. Jesus gave thanks to the Father for it and said, this is my body. This is the fulfillment of that manna that was given to our people, Israel, in the Old Testament. I am the bread of life. I am the manna. My body will be broken for you, will be given for you. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. The manna is Jesus. Let us break and partake of it together. Like the Apostle Paul when he was interrupted by Festus saying he was out of his mind preaching the resurrection of the dead. So to you, Jesus, in the midst of Judas Iscariot betraying you, in the night of that betrayal, you were uninterrupted with your sermon and with your goal. In the night that you were betrayed, you realized you were going to give your body, even for betrayers, traitors, and Peter deniers. You were going to give your life for sinners. And you took the bread and you broke it and you said, This is your body taken. We thank you, Jesus. For giving your body for us. In like manner, he took the cup, prayed over the cup, said this is the cup of the new covenant given for you for the remission of sins. The cup of the new covenant in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. And remember my death until I return, until I come again. Let us partake together of the cup. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to go to the cross to die for our sins on our behalf in our place. Let us stir the hearts of your people to worship you, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth right now to exalt the name of your son Jesus together. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Thanks, man.